Morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to continue on in Mark chapter 12. The title of the message is The Sadducees Greatly Err About the Eternal State. Probably could have come up with something shorter, but that's what we got. Mark 12, beginning reading in verse 18, it says, Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise And the seven had her, and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. So in the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said to them, Do you not therefore err, because you know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven." And as touching the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And he says, ye therefore do greatly err. So, you know, in our culture today, these books have come out and they've kind of quit coming out. There was a lot of these books coming out about people that had died, both young and old, and come back. A lot of them Christian books went to heaven, come back to describe in detail, saying things that the Bible doesn't say. And all of these books came out. There was a lot of money to be made. So they were called heaven tourism books. (laughs) Going to give you a tour of heaven. People today... They want to base their beliefs on what heaven will be like, and that's Christian and non-Christians based on culture, movies, and books. Not so much what the Bible claims. And here's the thing we need to remember is the Bible is our final word on everything spiritual and eternal. And I would say anything that goes beyond what it says is suspect, if not to be rejected, is what I would say on that. People are a lot like the rich man in Hades. They want to say, if only somebody will go back from the dead and explain what things are like, that would really bolster my faith. But what was Jesus' answer to that man in Luke 16? He says, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So faith in the resurrection and in the beauty and glory of heaven, it doesn't come from a 12-year-old coming back and telling and describing what it was like. Where does that faith come from? It comes from the Word of God, period, and what it teaches. Because a lot of those books err in the same way that the Sadducees errors we'll see in a little bit. That they assume heaven is just an ongoing earthly existence just in a bigger and in a greater and in a brighter way. And they end up going beyond what the scriptures teach. So for instance, in November 14th, 2004, a guy, his name was Alex Malarkey. And his father, Kevin, so they both, the two of them, they were involved in a near-fatal car accident. And so Alex remained in a coma for two months. And later, he tells of visiting heaven and meeting Jesus. Writes a book, makes all this money. 
That's 2004. In November 23, 2012, his mother, Beth, begins a series of articles that she writes revealing that the whole thing was a hoax. That's 2012. January 15, 2015, Alex Malarkey, he writes a letter. Lifeway is one of the bigger Christian bookstores that's still in existence. A lot of them have gone out of business due to Amazon. But in 2015, January, Alex writes a letter to Lifeway and other sellers, buyers, and marketers of heaven tourism. That's a quote. And he tells them this. Now, this is 11 years later. He tells them, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. So Tyndale Publishers, they're a huge Christian publishing company. They published that book, so they announced then that they're going to stop selling the book. And so two months later, in March 24th, 2015, Lifeway halts the sales of all Heaven Tourism books. And I could have given you quotes, but there's a lot of popular speakers today that a lot of you would know if I named them. They're conservative people came out saying, why are you even reading these books? The Word of God tells us everything we need to know. And I'm not saying you couldn't teach it from the Word of God, but that's different than these books. So if you rely on more than what the Word of God says, and that's what has to bolster your faith, then what happens when it comes out that it all was not true to begin with? What's that going to do to your faith then? That's kind of what you need to ask yourself. Because 2 Timothy 3.16, it tells us this, and we've heard this verse before, but it says that all Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I'm saying the Word of God gives us everything we need. And I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes if you read one of those books and thought it was great. Just trying to make a point. Because that's what we're going to be dealing with tonight is false assumptions about the hereafter. So we have here in Mark chapter 12 and verse 18, the Sadducees come to Jesus with the question about the resurrection. And there's two groups back at that time that dominated the religious scenes. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They dominated. But of the three groups that we read about here in chapter 12 that come to Jesus with questions, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, believe it or not, the Sadducees were the smallest group of the three. But it doesn't mean they were the least powerful because these guys were the aristocrats. They were the upper crust of society, the money people that had influence in Israel. So they were of the high priestly line. And so they were in charge of the temple and all the things that went on in the temple. That's what they were in charge of. And they also were politically, they're plugged into Rome. And so because of those things, they couldn't have Jesus on the scene. They figuring out a way they have to destroy him because he's going to mess up their standing, their social position. They don't want Rome coming in there and taking them away from the position they had in the temple and politically. The reason we don't know a whole lot about him other than what the Bible says and Josephus historian tells us some things about it, but there's no writings left that they had. And when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, that was the end of them. There was nothing else left of the Sadducees. But what distinguished them, like the Samaritans, so they did not accept, the Sadducees did not accept the whole Old Testament as God's word. All they accepted were the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, 
They accepted that and that alone. So any other doctrine, any other teaching that came from anywhere other than the first five books of Moses, they rejected. And so in the first five books of Moses, there's really not a clear-cut doctrine taught on the resurrection. So the Pharisees believed in it, but we'll see later. That came out of Daniel and a quotation of Isaiah and some other ones. So they didn't believe that the Word was the Word of God except the Pentateuch, and they also didn't believe in the supernatural. So they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in demons, they didn't believe in the afterlife. So here's what characterized these guys. They're skeptical of biblical truth. And they disbelieved in a God that supernaturally intervened in the lives of men and over creation. And listen, that same spirit that operated through those guys, if you haven't figured it out yet, is still alive and well today, isn't it? (laughs) So here's the question that they posed to Jesus. And listen, they're not serious about this question. But it's right there in verse 19. They're asking him, Master, they're coming in like the other ones. They're feigning that they have a lot of respect for him. Master, teacher, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind and leave no children that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. And they go on and on. And so what they're bringing up there is based on it's in the Pentateuch. So they're quoting the Pentateuch. It's Deuteronomy 25, the Leverate Law, which Leverate means brother-in-law. And the law said that if you have several brothers and one of them has a wife and the brother dies before she has a child, that the other brother is obligated to marry her and raise up a child for his brother. And it's a law that's given to protect the widow because the man has to marry her, he has to raise a child, he has to watch over the property until that child is old enough to take care of it. But it's also going to preserve the family line. It's designed to preserve the brother's name. And so we have two cases of that. We don't have a direct case of this anywhere in the Bible, but we have two cases that are related to that. One before the law was ever given in Genesis 38, where Tamar, who was the daughter-in-law of Judah, One of his sons that married her, he dies, he gives her the second one, and he, because he didn't want to raise up seed through her, spills the seed on the ground, so it said God kills him, and Judah's like, I only got one boy left, and this woman's bad news, and so he's like, I'm not going to give her to him, wait till he's more grown up, and so she tricks him and ends up acting like a prostitute, Judah comes in and knows her, to use a biblical term or whatever, but seed is raised up that way. The other case we have is what? What other case do we know where that is used? What book? The book of Ruth. So the near kinsman of Elimelech is Boaz, and he raised up seed for his dead son. Elimelech's dead son, his brother's dead son. The interesting thing about that is both of those cases, so Ruth's a Moabitess, she shouldn't have had any inheritance, and Tamar She kind of had that child in an illicit way. But both of those cases, they are named in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. And that story of Tamar, I think, is pretty interesting over in Genesis 38, if you want to read that. And, of course, the book of Ruth is interesting. So that's where this question is based on, the law of Deuteronomy 28. Here they come up with this question. That law of the leverate has nothing to do with the resurrection, does it? They're really mocking the whole idea of the resurrection. They think it's ridiculous. And to them, the whole question is a joke. And Jesus is going to be the brunt of it. That's what they intend to have happen here. Because they raise this scenario of somebody having the seven brothers involved with one woman. It's absurd. It's never going to happen. I mean, technically, it's possible. But nothing like that's ever going to happen. We have no record of it in the Bible. 
But in raising this question the way they do that we read, they think they have Jesus painted in a corner. They think they've logically outwitted him. There's three reasons why people ask questions. And one reason is they want to get an answer, a public question. The other reason is they want to look smart. And the third reason is they want to embarrass or make the person they're questioning look stupid. I mean, I had to deal with this last night in prison. This guy here, he wouldn't be quiet. And he keeps asking like he just wants to ask a question so everyone can learn. And really, he's just wanting to be the center of attention. It's demonic, the center of the attention, showing how much he knows. I don't know what, but I mean, it took a lot to get him to finally quiet down and sit down and just listen. But I'm saying he didn't really want an answer because I told him, I said, I'll be glad to talk to you when the meeting's over and all that. Well, he just couldn't wait. <laughs> so I'm saying we don't have, number one, the case with these guys. They're not really wanting an answer. Number two and number three both apply here. And so they think they have just come up with this brilliant question Jesus will never be able to answer. They're going to mock him. And I guarantee you they kind of had that smug smirk on their face like they had really got him. And that's what the ungodly will do a lot of times. I don't know if you've experienced that, but they'll take scripture and twist it to trip up believers. They'll take truth and twist it to trip you up. And that's why Paul, and he admonishes ministers in Titus, but I think it also, it would apply to all of us. And what he says is, talking about a pastor or a bishop, he says they should hold him fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. And so a gainsayer is somebody that contradicts truth or opposes it or speaks against it. So that should hold true for all of us. We should be well enough versed holding on the faithful word that when somebody comes and they want to contradict or they have a question, especially publicly if there's someone else around, we should be able to answer them like the Lord Jesus did. And anyways, isn't that what he says in Luke? He says, you're going to be brought before councils and religious leaders, you're going to have to give an answer for the questions they have. And there's a lot of accounts of that in Fox's Book of Martyrs. These people were brought before these Catholic councils, and I mean, they were ruthless with these guys. But he says, you just have to trust that the Holy Spirit in that hour, he is going to give you an answer that they won't be able to gainsay. And that would happen many times. And I'm thinking, we're going to have to know that and remember that in the future. And that's what happened here with Jesus. And I remember one time, me and another brother, we'd gone out to Bardstown Road to witness, and it was a cold night. I think it was in the 40s or whatever. I mean, it was cold enough you needed to have a coat on. And one of these guys, probably a Louisville student, <laughs> anyways, he'd learned just enough Bible from one of his professors at school that he comes up, he's got his girlfriend on his arm and another guy and a girl, and he says to the brother, he says, you believe the Bible? And the brother's like, yeah. He goes, well, then give me your coat. I'm thinking, man, you give him your coat, it's going to be a long night. Or we're going to have a short time out here witnessing. He's thinking he's quoting a scripture. He didn't quote the scripture, but he's like, well, the Bible says you've got to give me whatever you want, and I'm demanding your coat. If you really know the word, you could have an answer to that, because the Bible doesn't say you just have to give them your coat because they ask. Matthew 5, 40 says, if any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat. Now, my answer would have been, take me to court, and you can have it. That wasn't that guy's intention. But he's just trying to twist that scripture to, I guess you could say, make a point. But he's trying to make a mockery of what we believe. You Christians, you say you believe the Bible, but you really don't believe the Bible. And that's kind of what's going on here with Jesus. So I think they're kind of mocking him in a way. They give this question and the kind of question they ask, painting this scenario that's just absurd. 
But I'll say this, Jesus wasn't joking when he gave an answer. He wasn't joking at all. And he would have wiped away whatever smugness and grin that they would have had on their face. It would have been taken off because look what he says there in verse 24. And Jesus, his answering, he said to them, do ye not therefore err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. Saying that to the Sadducees, that you men that are supposed to be experts in the scriptures and especially the Pentateuch, to tell them that you do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God, that would be like telling Adam back there that he doesn't know anything about computers and how they work. Because Adam's going to change his name to Adam.com. I'm saying that's about how absurd it would be. He'd be like, what are you talking about? I think I know 300 times more than you ever will. And he does know 300 times more than I ever will. That's what they majored in. That was their bread and butter. And to tell them you do err, and at the end he tells them you don't just err. He says you greatly err. I mean, that would have been a major insult to those guys. So when he's telling them they err, that word err means to wander aimlessly like lost sheep. To wander off track somewhere. So when a train is on a track, what? It's running true, isn't it? But if it somehow gets derailed and goes off that track, what's happened to that train? It's lost its purpose and its direction. Even a better illustration is you've got a ship that it's tied to the port. And if for some reason that rope gets cut or somehow it comes loose, that ship does what? It just starts floating. It's just wandering aimlessly, just floating aimlessly with no purpose, lost out in the ocean. And that's what he's telling these guys. You've got no bearing, no direction. You're lost. So he's telling them, you have cut yourselves off from the truth, so to speak. You err, aimlessly wandering at sea. So you think you know the truth, but he's saying you are mistaken with what you're doing. And listen, that is the description of a lot of people today, isn't it? They've cut themselves off from the truth and the scriptures, and they're just aimlessly wandering through life, looking for purpose, truth, or direction. And I'm saying, if you're just going to watch the media, Lisa was telling me the other night, she's watching the Weather Channel, and here's this lady, she's acting like everything she's saying just makes perfect sense. And it's a scientist and somebody that's knowledgeable, and she's talking about these meteors full of water that come and hit the earth, and the water explodes and keeps happening, and all of a sudden we've got oceans and Whatever all else, we got water on earth. I'm just saying that like it's a fact. And he would say, you greatly err, not knowing the scriptures. Because all you need to do, our little kids that have a little class back there could inform her of really how water came on earth, couldn't they, Jane? They'd do a very good job of it, too. Because they know the scriptures. And it's simple. I'm, I'm listening to what she's saying. I'm like, how in the world could anybody believe that? I mean, it's crazy, but people do. And so there's two reasons for this. There's two reasons that he tells them you greatly err. And the first one, he says, is because you know not the scripture. Look at verse 24. Jesus answering said to them, do you not therefore err? And the first thing he says, why? Because he says, you know not the scriptures. Now he's not telling them, look, you don't know the scriptures because all you've done is limited yourself to the Pentateuch. Or he's not telling them you don't know the scriptures because you've never studied the scriptures at all. So the question is, how is it that they don't know the scriptures? They're ignorant. 
So how could you be ignorant of the scriptures? Well, one way you could be ignorant of the scriptures is to never have the chance to read them or never hear them. And there are millions of people today that quote unquote don't know the scriptures because they're ignorant. They don't have a Bible. Some people don't even have a Bible in their own language. In countries that do, a lot of the Muslim countries and African countries, they aren't allowed access. But I'm saying you don't even have to go that far away. I've been down to the skate parks. The skate park down there and witnessed the people in times past. I mean, I have talked to young teenagers. They literally knew nothing of the Bible. You'd quote the most basic things that when I was a heathen growing up, I would have at least known what the person was talking about. Would have heard it. So people never been to church, didn't have a Bible, never read a Bible. And I mean, it's like, wow, where do you begin with someone like that? You know, one time I had a Russian kid that worked with me, grew up over there. He didn't understand what sin was. I said, you really, you don't? He goes, no, I just see something, I just do it. Like, no right or wrong. And my man's like, where do you begin with that? <laughs> I don't remember where I began, it was a long time ago, but I began somewhere and explained it to him. But the other way that you cannot know something is to just ignore it. And by that I mean to fail to consider it. And so look what he says to him there in verse 26, and as touching the dead, that they rise not. Jesus says to them, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him? And on and on it says. And they would have been, yeah, of course we've read that. Everybody knows that story. And he just refers to it as in the bush, the bush story. Well, everybody knows the bush story. So is that what he's saying? Is he saying, have you never read it? He knows they've read it. Every Jew would have read it, and especially a Sadducee or a Pharisee would have read it. But he's saying, look, I know that you've read it is his point. But have you ever taken the time to consider it? Because not doing that is the same as ignoring it or not knowing it. And I'm saying just because people have read the scripture, been to places, been educated in the scripture, doesn't mean they know truth. I could give a bunch of Catholic stories here, but when I was in high school, and God was seriously dealing with me then. I mean, I really wanted to be saved. I did. And I didn't know anything about it. I mean, I'd watch Billy Graham and I'd think, man, there are people, there's something happens to those people. They got something I don't have that I need. And I know I'm going to hell. So for me as a Catholic, I didn't know who else to talk to. I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with any other churches. So there was a priest that I liked, that I was friends with. And he's at a basketball game. I'm in high school. And I went up to him. I'm saying, hey, Father, you know, I want to be saved. Can you tell me how to be saved? He just looked at me, and he literally did not know what to say. You know why? For one, he, he knew the scriptures. He could have quoted probably John 3.16, I guess, but he didn't know them. He didn't know them in a way to point me to salvation, because in his mind, that all happened back when I was baptized as an infant. And I'm like, well, man, if that happened, nothing changed with me. I'm not like these people. So the point is, there's a difference between reading and hearing and even learning and knowing. That's what the Lord's saying here. And he goes on to say, he says, you don't know the scriptures. And he also says, you don't know, neither, he says, the power of God. I'm going to say you are never going to reason with somebody. You're not going to reason them into a belief of the resurrection because the problem is not intellectual, is it? It's a spiritual problem that they don't believe in the resurrection and won't commit their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so until a person has experienced the power of God, he's like, you don't know the power of God. You've never experienced it. They'll never truly 
be able to believe or know? Because let me ask you, can a person that's not truly born again really believe in the resurrection? Can they really? They might intellectually know about it. But I'd say until you're born again, you don't know about that supernatural realm and the power of God and the power of the gospel. Because until that point, you're just living in the natural realm of things and the natural explanation of things. You really are. Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not ashamed of the gospel. That's how you know the power of God unto salvation. We're talking about the resurrection and power, and I know we've heard this scripture probably a hundred times, but if you turn to Ephesians 1, just want to look at this just to prove this point. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. And this is Paul's prayer. We've talked that God may open the eyes of your understanding, may know what is the riches of his glory, of his inheritance. And look at verse 19, it says, and to know he prays that we would know what is the exceeding greatness of what? His power. And who is his power demonstrated toward us who what? Believe according to the working of his mighty power. And where does that come from? Verse 20, which he wrought in Christ in the resurrection when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, might, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in this world to come. So Paul's prayer is that we may know that resurrection power that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ through believing in him, trusting in him. That's what he's saying there, to know the power of God. Because the opposite of that is 2 Timothy 3, 5, when he talks about in the last days, we know this, that perilous times will come, that men will have a form of godliness. They'll appear to be godly, but it says, what about them? They will deny what? The power of it. And that's who these Sadducees were. Description of the Sadducees. They knew nothing of the power of God. And because of that, Jesus said, you err. You haven't experienced the power of God. You can't rightly interpret scriptures. And so to know the power of God, you have to experience what? What are you going to experience? You have to, first of all, it has to be the new birth, doesn't it? Then the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was part of the package in the early church. You got saved, you got baptized, you got filled with the Holy Spirit. You're experiencing the power of God in a multitude of ways. I mean, Hebrews 6 it talks about, hey, if you've had this, you better not fall away. Hebrews 6, 4, and 5, it says, remember back when you were once enlightened? This is all by the supernatural power of God. You're enlightened. Your eyes are open. You see your need. You see the Savior, the answer to your need. When you were once enlightened, when you tasted of the heavenly gift, it's talking about the new birth through the Lord Jesus Christ. When you were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, when he said you tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, the resurrection life. And that's what should be the experience of every Christian. And that's what will keep you from error. Because the Sadducees were what? They were the liberals of their day. And liberals always deny the supernatural intervention of God. They always deny the power of God. And they embrace 
what society says and what culture says as the answer to their problems. That's what happens. They reject the word of God and they reject God's power to back it up. You got to hear what I'm saying on that. They reject the word and also the power to back the word up. That's the final answer. And I'm saying, I think, and I fear that's making its way too much into our lives. Because liberals will mock the idea that sickness is the work of the devil. Do we look at it that way? Or do we look at it like the world teaches us to look at sickness and how it's diagnosed? Because the woman that was bowed over, they would have had a scientific explanation and a scientific way to heal her. They would have laughed to say that's a spirit that's causing that and she just needs deliverance. They would have laughed at that. And I'm saying, what are we doing on that? Or what about depression? Or any of the other mental illness? They would have laughed to say that's the work of evil spirits. And if they were in charge of everything, Mary Magdalene, it, she wouldn't have been delivered of seven spirits like it says in Mark 16, 9, but she would have been on seven medications. I guarantee it. And so when we say that God will protect us by his angels, Psalm 91, we used to call it our assurance policy. Sadducees would have laughed at that. Oh, you don't need an assurance policy. You need an insurance policy, fully loaded, along with a fully loaded pistol. That's what's going to protect you. And none of the Bible says, no, God will protect you. We talked about Sunday, you're immortal until it's your time to die. And they didn't like Jesus. They weren't real happy with him. In Luke 4, he gets on their case about there isn't any faith here in Israel. Elijah had to go outside of Israel to find it. It should have been here. He's backhanded insult in a way. Oh, they didn't like that. They said they got hot. And they took him, and they're going to throw him down a cliff to kill him. Oh, what should he have done? Pulled out his Colt 45 or whatever it is, 357, and taking care of that crowd, taking as many down with him before they got him over that side. You know, I'm at least going to get four or five of you before you get me over there. Is that what he should have done? Instead, what does it say? He trusted in God, didn't he? And what does it say happened? God supernaturally had to blind their eyes, did something to those men, because the next thing you read, he just walked right out of their midst. And that's what God will do. But do we believe that? Or are we more like the Sadducees and the liberals? They don't believe a story like that could never happen. They'll argue with you over that. If Cub doesn't provide, Citizen Union Bank, then I'll never have anything. That's the way the liberals would look at it. Because you know why? Because they didn't trust in the living God. And that's why Jesus had to tell them, you greatly err. He's not the God of the dead like you are. He's the God of the living. He's a living God. We can trust him. Mr. Alexander said the Sadducees, to them, God was just a thought. He was just an idea. He wasn't a being that they experienced. They didn't deny his existence. But he wasn't somebody they experienced, somebody they interacted with. They didn't have any experience of God in their daily life. So Jesus is saying, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know. You have never experienced the power of God. They didn't. They didn't think they could. They didn't think anyone could. That's where they were. In the New Testament, Mr. Alexander said, it only knows of Christians that know of the power of God that operates in their lives on a daily basis. That's New Testament Christianity. 
God never did anything for the Sadducees. Not one day for them, unless they got converted. That could have happened. But how has our day been? How has your day been? Because it's easy to get away from bringing God into your entire day and expecting him to manifest his spirit in all kinds of ways in our lives. But isn't that what he promises us he'll do? Yeah. How has he been involved in your day? Because I think, I agree with Mr. Alexander, we need to get freed from that type of thinking. Because it's all around us in our culture, in the movies, in the media, everywhere. That we don't depend on God. They're not teaching you that. And we got to get delivered from that type of thinking. In a big trial, that'll deliver you real quick. So the third thing we want to see here, if you go back to Mark, is he gives, Jesus gives his answer to their question. Verses 25 to 27, he says, after he tells them they don't know the scriptures nor the power of God, in verse 25, he says, For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And as touching the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spoke unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead. But God is the God of the living. You therefore do greatly err. He answers their hypothetical question. And I like what somebody said. It had to be hypothetical because if that would have really happened, by the time you're the fifth one in line and you see all the rest of them have died, you're going to stop. You're going to be this is a bad woman. I'm going to want anything to do with her. So that had to be hypothetical. He takes it all the way up to seven. They would have figured her out by then. But what this does, though, is even their hypothetical situation reveals they have this gross misunderstanding of what the afterlife is all about. They just thought it was just going to be an extension of your life here on earth. That's what the Pharisees thought. And the Sadducees are just assuming Jesus thinks the same thing. And so the Pharisees, no, they believe. They believe the Bible, the whole thing, whole Old Testament. And they would point to a verse like Isaiah 26, 19 that says, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. That would be one verse they would point to. Or the Pharisees might point to Daniel 12, 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so the Pharisees, and we're not talking about the Sadducees, we're over on the Pharisees. That's what they believed. They believed in the resurrection, but the way they believed the resurrection is not what Jesus teaches. So in a way, he's correcting them, too, because they believe that the resurrection was just going to be an extension of this life, just greater and more glorious, so to speak. You know, they would have thought there was going to be marriage, sex, and golf, or whatever it is they like to do. And they're a lot like, who? Which group today believes that? We give my life as a martyr, I'm going to have the seven virgins. That's what the Muslims believe. It's going to be a continuation of what goes on here. And the Hollywood movies will teach you the same thing if you watch those. And the media will tell you the same thing. They make jokes on the talk shows about this famous golfer dies. Well, we know he's looking down on us up there and just got a hole in one in heaven or whatever, you know, the kind of stuff they say. And so the Sadducees are assuming that Jesus looks at the resurrection and the eternal state just like the Pharisees. But hey, Jesus gives them an answer and he's saying, uh uh, it's not going to be like that. When you die, when a Christian dies or a believer, they aren't going to go on existing and living just like they have on earth. He's saying, no, there's not going to be marriage. They're not going to be given in marriage. He doesn't say men will become angels. What does he say? 
he says they will be like angels, doesn't he? And there's a difference there. And so the power of God answers the question of what will the existence of saints be like? And why does that answer that? Because the power of God will do what? It's going to transform everything in the eternal state. And that's going to be the ultimate display of his power. So look, when his power did what? It created the heavens and earth that we look at now. Because Romans 1 says that anybody on this earth can just look at creation, all the variety, the majesty of the mountains, all the stars, just everything about it. And they said any man can look at that and see the eternal power of God. And he says because of that, there will be no excuse because everyone can see that. But in the eternal state, God's power is going to be displayed to perfection, a perfection we can't fathom or imagine. So the Bible teaches we will be living. What does it teach? What's the resurrection about? We're going to be living in new bodies that are supernatural, spiritual bodies. Now, there's no picture painted of what that body will look like, is there? It doesn't really tell us. It just says, you read 1 Corinthians 15, that it's going to be a powerful body. It's going to be incorruptible, not going to be subject to decay, getting old or whatever. It's going to be glorious. And that it's going to be a resurrected body that will look like our Lord Jesus. Can anyone want to draw a picture of what that looks like? I have no idea, do we? I don't know what it will look like. And John says this, he says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we'll be like him. For we shall see him as he is. So what does that do with all these people coming back telling you what it all looks like? I'm like, well, the Bible doesn't tell me that. I don't really care what you have to say about it, honestly. I really don't. Right or wrong. Why did it happen in the New Testament if it's so crucial for me and my faith to know all that? Is would kind of be my question. But our new bodies are going to do what for us? They're going to enable us to live in this new heaven and this new earth that God will recreate and transform from the old. Because what does it say? It tells us in 2 Peter that the old is going to do what? It is going to burn up with fervent heat. And here, I'm just telling you, the Bible really doesn't go into any detail about any of it. You know why? Because we couldn't comprehend it. We have no way of comparing what heaven's like compared to what it really is. It's indescribable beauty and glory. There's no way we could know what it's like. Jesus doesn't try to describe it here to the Sadducees, does he? All he says is they're not going to marry, they're not going to be given to marriage. And Paul can only say this, as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. It tells us enough to where we know it's going to be worth it. And he also says in Romans 8, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. I mean, man, it is going to be something else. The glory that will be revealed in us. And we'll experience it. We'll be looking on each other that way. Got to be something else. To where Paul's trying to encourage him in Romans 8, no matter what you go through, don't let yourself get separated from the love of God. You won't be. Because he's saying no matter what you have to endure, it's not worthy to be compared. It's so much beyond comparison. 
Now, you look, even the book of Revelation, it just gives you a brief overview, doesn't it, of the heavenly Jerusalem and what the eternal state will be like. But what is the main focus, even when you read Revelations 20 and 21? The main focus is on the glory of God, on the throne of God, and the Lamb, and the fact that their light and their presence fills everything. Everything it will be experienced. And so the focus is what? And even what is Jesus' focus here? He just says, you're not going to marry, but he says, it's God. It's all about God, the God of the living. And that's what you have in the book of Revelation. So the Bible's focus is not on that we're going to be playing golf and swimming and tennis and having a big time like what you think. No, the focus is you'll see God face to face and you'll have a glorified body like his. How many worship songs do we sing or read about on Sunday in Revelation 5? That's all you're going to care about. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. I'm not saying you won't care about other things. I'm not trying to say everything here. But the point is that everything will be transformed in life. There will be nothing like we know it here. But so much glorious, so much more of a blessing than we could ever imagine. I know people, they're excited to think they're going to be reunited with their spouse or their loved ones or friends that have gone on to be with the Lord. The reason is, I think, is because your family is the one place that you get unconditional love. I mean, I thought about that. You know, I think that was why I would get so homesick. And my, you know, my family wasn't perfect, but I knew I was accepted there no matter what I did or whatever. They were going to love me no matter what. And that is that. But here in heaven, though, everything's going to be transformed, Jesus is saying, even marital relationships. I know some people, especially people in the world, that really disappoints them. You mean, man, I'm not going to be with me and my wife like it was before. Well, he's saying it's not. So you got to think, it's been said there's been four reasons God gave marriage. And you think about it, what was one reason? The first reason he gave marriage was so that people won't be lonely. It says that in Genesis. It's not good that man should be alone. But in heaven, the fellowship will be perfect. Perfect fellowship. All of our needs for companionship will be met in a glorious way, a way that we can't even imagine. And the other thing is, marriage does what? It meets all of human love, what human love needs in every respect physical, emotional, and spiritual. Heaven is going to meet those needs and our new bodies better than anything here because nobody has the perfect marriage. I mean, I know some of you are like that close. But nobody has the perfect marriage, that flawless marriage. But heaven, everything's going to be perfect there. Every need will be met. No one unsatisfied. And also, what's another reason that we have marriages? It's because we know in the Bible, so spouses can help each other, help support each other, encourage one another, pray for one another. All that goes on, right? We won't need that in heaven. Not in that sense. And the other thing, the last reason is, Marriage is given for the obvious procreation and to raise a godly seed. But in the eternal state, there is no need for babies. There's nobody birthed in the eternal state and nobody dies. So for me, it's kind of hard to imagine you're going to have a life without marriage and family. But imagine the best marriage you could ever have. And beautiful relationship. Everything's perfect. You're totally happy, totally satisfied. Multiply that out by infinity and then you would just have a small glimpse of what relationships in heaven will be like. 
So he's not saying, and I'm not saying, I don't believe the Lord's saying here that we're not going to have any feelings for our loved ones because we go to heaven. But he is just saying that life in heaven is not going to just be a bigger version of what we have here on earth is what he's saying. I'm saying I still think there's no way you're going to see your spouse because it tells us we'll know the people we're seeing. We'll know who they are. You can recognize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll recognize your spouse. And to say you have no feelings towards them, I don't think that's going to be the case or your family members or close friends that you had. But I think it's just going to be so much different on all levels, so much different than our earthly lives that we just can't even imagine it. Because I think that love is going to be better. It's going to be more pure and less selfish even for your spouse, your friends, your family, your loved ones. So I'm not saying it won't be there. Anybody's thinking, what's he saying? I really like my wife. I do too. And I don't think I'm going to look at my wife and be like, <laughs> in heaven, I'll be just thrilled. She's there and I'm there, right? That's the way it is. <laughs> so what do we learn tonight? What do we learn? The first thing, that question that for the Sadducees was one of disdain and mockery, it was taken deadly serious by the Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't it? And I said, I'm thinking, he didn't think it was any small thing that they erred in their view of Scripture, and especially the resurrection. Because their problem was that they lived for this life only and the pleasure they could get out of it. And that's what happens when you have a low view or no view of the resurrection. You're just going to live for this life. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he's like, why did I go through what I went through if there's nothing after this? Because he said, if after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what does that advantage me if the dead rise not? He says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And you know what he went on to say? Be not deceived because evil companions corrupt good morals because a spiritual and a holy life depends on the expectation and the hope of the resurrection the promise of a new body and a new heaven and seeing the lord face to face that has been that promise has been the source of many martyrs willing to endure suffering so hebrews 12:35 says this women receive their dead raised to life again and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Do to me what you want to. I'm not going to renounce the Lord because this is going to be over here shortly. And I've got an eternal and it says a better resurrection. I was telling Greg, I remember I've read, you think about, oh, well, you're just going to sit there and watch your teenage girl being whatever. Well, that happened. I remember there was one girl, I forget her name, it's a famous case. They took her and her mother, they were both Christians, and they tied them on stakes out in the ocean when the tide was out. So the tide's coming back in, and all they had to do was recant. All they had to do was recant. They'd been taken off those stakes, and they could have lived. I think it was the mother had to watch her daughter thrashing in the water. She refused to recant, and she encouraged her. Would you encourage your teenage daughter to do that? Encourage her, hold fast. God is faithful. It'll be over soon had to watch her drown. And then she had her turn come, and both of them drowned. But why would you do that? Except you had the hope of a better resurrection. Amen? The second thing is, the Sadducees erred. Why? What was the first thing he said? He says, you don't know the Scriptures. You're ignorant of the Scriptures. And the question is, 
are we? Are we? And the third thing, and the second problem, and the third thing was they were unacquainted with the power of God. And I'm saying that's easy to do, isn't it? Because our society and our culture and everything about it is trying to get us away from that, to realizing and experiencing the power of God. We need to remember, lastly, that when we've tasted the greatest spiritual blessing on earth, it's only a minuscule foretaste of what awaits us in heaven. The best anointing, the best praise, the best whatever, experiencing a healing, whatever it is, God's presence, it's only a foretaste of what awaits us in heaven. And so the Sadducees, those men and people like that, they've experienced all the good they ever will in the here and now. That's it. But for us that are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead, guess what? <laughs> this is what we're saying tonight. The best is yet to come, isn't it? Amen. Because we have a great expectation and hope of the future. And that's what we need to keep before us. It'll all be worth it, won't it? And as I heard a man say one time famously, He's saying, what I need to do is just stamp eternity on my eyeballs. So I'm seeing it there every moment that I'm living because it's coming. And our life is just a vapor compared to the infinite, vast amount of eternity waiting for us. So when we see this with what he promises waiting for us, if we'll just be faithful, that should be a good incentive to hold on, shouldn't it? Amen. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you once again for your word, your word of truth. And that based on what you said, Lord, we can know what the eternal state is like and what the resurrection of the body is all about, Lord. And we don't have to take men's opinions, people that don't know truth, that you have given us a guide to tell us the word that tells us all that we need to know about the eternal state. I just ask you, Lord, that you'll make us people that know your word, that understand your word and that experience your power. And so that will keep us from error ask that you'll do that for us, Lord. Put all of this in our heart, and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.